The Tablet Show, Episode 5, with guests Dan Hanan and Danny Warren. Recorded live Friday, October 28, 2011. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Dan Hanan and Danny Warren about how they made Connect work with WinRT. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Xamarin, offering tools for developing iPhone, iPad, and Android apps with .NET. Online at xamarin.com. And by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Hey, Rockheads, how you doing? It's Carl and Richard. What's up, Richard? I'm here. You're here. We're all here. How are you? Um, Man, this is going to be a fun show. A fun, fun show. You always like it when we can cross the streams. I get that. Yes. Uh, I'm just so excited I want to jump right into the interview, but we got some business to do first. Do let's, the business, uh, then. Let's do Better Know Framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, so I went trawling for some great uh, blog posts here, and I found a great one. Oh. So, yeah, if you go to tinyurl.com slash crumptips, C-R-U-M-P, tips, this is uh, Michael Crump's blog, and he's got a four-part blog post on tricks and tips for Silverlight developers. Oh. And it's great. You know, it's that classic Hanselman style where you've got, you know, uh, embedded images and markup and you know code with line numbers and just great stuff. So uh, tip number one is uh, you can easily enable a visual frame rate counter inside your Silverlight application. And it's good for profiling and performance testing of your Silverlight app before you move it into production status. Okay. So there's a way that you can do that. There's another one for clearing isolated storage on your Silverlight app from the browser instead of through code. And that's just a nice little tip. He says a surprising amount of people aren't aware of this. It's easy to access and do without writing any code. Uh, he's got another one to insert a line break inside of a text block or text box. Hmm. You know, text is sort of like a, I don't know, I think of it as a second-class citizen in Silverlight. Yeah. It really is. So um, so there's a line break that you can just put in the text. You know, uh, angle bracket, line break, slash, close angle bracket. And these and are little works. things you just didn't know about. Yeah, just little things. Uh, embedding fonts not included with Silverlight into your Silverlight app. Mm -hmm. And then you know, uses blend. So there's good stuff. And this is just part one. There's four parts to this series. Awesome. Really good stuff. I put the link into the show so it's easy to find. Just head to the website. All right, Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 709, and that was the show from Alexander Gross about MSpec. And this ah. comment is from Bart uh, Vertigosian. So it looks very Dutch. Yeah. Uh, Hi, Carl and Richard. Thanks again for a great show. In past projects, I never got into implementing unit tests, as I always ran into the chicken-egg issue of not knowing what to test until it was too late. With too late, I mean before I start programming. 
I defined specifications in a document, built the implementation in code, and found it extremely tedious and time-consuming to cover the code with unit tests. It would be too much effort for the size of the projects I was doing. Even though I needed the benefits of code testing in order to implement changes and knowing that I wouldn't break something. Therefore, it really resonated with me that if I would be able to write some specifications in code first and add tests to it later, it'd be the perfect solution to the problem. The fact that the code maps perfectly to human readable text is a big time saver, and I think that's the best feature of MSpec. If you apply a smart color scheme to Visual Studio with operators and keywords in a light color, you could probably write the code while the business owner is watching. I haven't seen other frameworks that could do this so neatly. So I dug into the matter after the show, and I found this great blog post by Rob Connery explaining BDD using MSpec, and he even made a screencast showing how to get started step-by-step, and I'll include the link to uh, Rob's blog post on this. And it's a must-read and must-watch for everyone who identifies themselves with the same problems I've mentioned. So we'll throw that link on the site. Bart, thanks for the additional resources. I think Rob Connery's a genius. And I think MSpec is very cool and a great way to sort of get anchored in this BDD approach to things. And if you have some ideas for shows or you want to add some more information to a show we've done, write a comment on the site at .NET Rocks.com. We'll send you a mug. Yeah. And all that. And all that. Yeah. And before we uh, get into the show, I want to give a shout out to DNR TV. Some great stuff there. Beth Massey continues to do stuff with Light Switch. And John Skeet, Deconstructed and reverse engineered the await keyword and shows you how to program it yourself in C sharp. So you can really understand what's going on there. Of course, async await, this is the new normal for everything, especially if you're going to be doing any uh, .NET 4.5. So there you go, DNR TV. And also, uh, I did a talk, my Metro talk, moving to Silverlight, and uh, I did that on DNR TV, and that should be up there now, dnrtv.com. All right, let's introduce our guest. I can't wait. This is going to be a great show. So uh, we we got to talking with Tim Huckabee, and uh, he had told us about this amazing um, Metro app that two of his guys had done, and I'm going to let them tell you about it. And they are Dan Hannon and Danny Warren. I know, very close, but we'll call Dan Hannon Dan and Danny Warren Danny, so you'll know. The difference. Dan is a lead software engineer at Internology in Carlsbad, California. He's been using WPF and Silverlight since they were born and has written apps using the Microsoft Surface and Connect hardware. Although he ran home from the build conference and cut a bunch of Windows 8 and Metro code, most of his real work these days is centered around a touch-based WPF WCF project that allows users to share data, visualizations, and scenarios across monitors distributed around the world. Before diving headfirst into the XAML stack, Dan worked on ClickOnce, WinForms, smart clients, and back-end technologies such as WCF, Azimax Web Services, and SQL. He likes to try to forget his early years, which were spent hassling with C++, MFC, and COM and all that. When not busy cutting code, Dan spends his idle cycles following Andrew Luck and the Stanford Cardinal football team's bid for this year's national championship, Go Card. I can't believe you got me to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, baby. Danny Warren is a software engineer at Internology in Carlsbad. Danny began acquiring his expertise in software engineering and .NET at Newmont University in Salt Lake City, Utah, where he graduated with a bachelor's degree in computer science. Danny's passion for technology has led him throughout the Microsoft stack, including WPF, Silverlight, WCF, Windows Phone 7, 
and the Microsoft Surface. Danny has an expertise in NUI, the natural user interface, having built numerous multi-touch and gesture-based interfaces for software applications across a broad spectrum of devices. Currently, his passion includes building Metro WinRT applications for Windows 8, driven by gesture-based interfaces with the Microsoft Connect. Danny is a Microsoft-certified professional developer, obtaining cert in .NET 4. When not building beautiful software, Danny is an outdoorsman and family man. Loves to camp, hike, and mountain bike. Oh, isn't that great? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, guys. Thanks. Hey, thanks. Good to be with you. So they said it couldn't be done. Green and blue could not talk to each other. And, of course, I'm talking about in the Windows 8 stack, you have the green side, which is the WinRT side, the Metro side, and then you have the blue side, which is the desktop side. But you guys have figured it out. That's right. Uh, as I said, we uh, we came running home from the Build Conference and uh, had our fancy tablets and started writing apps. And but soon thereafter, we were uh, wanting to connect the connect. Right? We wanted to. We've been doing a lot of apps lately where we WPF-based apps that are. Uh, hooked up to the connect and then you you know the 10 foot interface right and you're standing right. back a few feet and you're manipulating scatter view items on a win 7 touch ui or you're you know doing gestures to drive the ui so of course we wanted to do the same thing in windows 8 of course but and as who's you say stopping the you? Uh, green can't talk to the blue so and to explain that a little further the um you know the green side is the metro side and it's built upon this Completely new API called WinRT, the Windows Runtime. And, um, you know, Metro apps are Metro, and they look different. They act different. They've got full access to, you know, these new APIs to do search and share and all this cool stuff with the OS. And then there's the blue side. You hop the fence, so to speak, and uh, you're over on the desktop side. Looks looks familiar. It has a start menu, which happens to take you back to the Metro side, by the yeah. way. <laughs> but... uh <laughs> You know, it's got uh, the taskbar at the bottom, and you can run all your legacy apps. Visual Studio lives over there, and, you know, you fire up a command prompt. It's and basically like Windows that. 7. Yeah, it's Windows yeah. 7. Um, and they, they more or less guarantee that all your legacy code, all your existing Windows 7 code, your .NET apps and things will run fine over there, which I think we've found is pretty much true. Pretty much true, yeah. So how do they make sure that a Metro app or a WinRT app can't, call into the other to the blue side so to speak to an existing or regular application or vice versa like uh, how is that enforced yeah i guess i mean technically i don't think there's any real low-level enforcement as as we'll discover as we get through this i mean we're we've got it working through low-level communications but uh you know it's really just a matter of the apis and and how your app is compiled um, it's still a little fuzzy in my mind, but my understanding is that when you're compiling an application, you know, some source code over on the Metro side, you're referring to, you know, they're called reference assemblies down in the program file, right. you know, Microsoft reference assemblies and stuff that have different metadata and different, uh, you know, it's a basically kind of a subset of the APIs that you're used to from .NET. And what gets compiled and, and linked and such uh, for your application to use at runtime is different. And so you can't just fire up, you know, you can't just call a piece of code that's going to end up calling some existing .NET code installed somewhere else on your machine. It's only going to do the things that WinRT allows it to do and, and knows about at compile time, you know, what it's linked against. From what I understand, uh, what gets compiled is just metadata for WinRT. And it's not until it's jitted or engined 
that those actually translate into VTable calls and get executed. So the code's not even in there. It's all all in WinRT. Yeah, um, and remember, there's the difference of WinRT is all this native code. You know, it's yeah. deep, we're not we're not calling uh, managed code libraries anymore. The uh, Windows.star namespace is all implemented in native code, and so you're calling, as you say, Carl, the the VTable dispatch stuff is completely different than what a runtime experience is for is in a uh, .NET application over on the desktop side. So, and uh, also, uh, and this is probably the biggest question that everybody had when we first heard about this is, and even Steven Sanowski came onto the alias, the RD alias, and said, uh, yeah, how's that, how's that going to get through the App Store, which is the only way that you can install a, a Windows 8 Metro app through the App Store? So yep, what is your, how, how are you guys planning to work around that? Uh, Danny, you want to talk about the uh, some of the install? Are you talking about yeah, the, uh, yep, the install struggles? So installing is uh, pretty much as straightforward as uh, making pizza, really. You, uh, you just have to have all the right ingredients. So in Windows 8, with the preview bits right now, we have to have what's called a dev license on the machine that you want to install to. So kind of backtracking from there, as long as you have a machine with this dev license, you can take any package that you can create through Visual Studio. So kind of working backwards through all of this, in uh, Visual Studio VS11, you can take uh, your, your Metro application and package it, package it up. And instead of having it packaged for the store, you have it packaged for local use. And you take that and you run some PowerShell commands against the uh, the package that you place on the target computer with the dev registration. And that all gets put on there, and it's all magical for you. It just kind of works. So it sounds like you have to have a developer license to do that, and which is fine for the dev preview, but once Windows 8 goes public, there really isn't any chance right now, is there, of, of this application uh, getting onto regular Windows 8 desktops? It's an interesting question. I, I don't know if I really know that, but right now with the preview, there's some way to run a little PowerShell command that actually installs the dev license on that machine without the need for having Visual Studio installed. Wow. Um, so it's so in the Yeah, exactly. So in the world to come, I would imagine that it, it would be very similar to what you're saying. You'd need to have the store in order to install any kind of application. So how you would pass that around for, say, an enterprise without putting your enterprise software up there for everyone to look at. Right. Not really sure how you would do that. This portion of the Tablet Show is brought to you by Xamarin. Are you a .NET developer looking to build native apps for iPhone, iPad, and Android platforms? Well, look no further because Xamarin has brought the .NET platform to iOS and Android. With MonoTouch and Mono for Android, you get all the power of the native platform, including the native UI toolkits and thousands of native APIs, and still develop with the elegance of C-sharp and the versatility of the .NET base class library. One of the most powerful features of MonoTouch and Mono for Android is that you can utilize existing C-sharp code and third-party libraries written in C or C++ for each platform, or even Objective-C if you're writing iOS apps. And just as awesome, 
You can try them both for free. So join thousands of other .NET developers and head over to Xamarin.com slash .NET Rocks. That's X-A-M-A-R-I-N dot com slash D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S to receive 15% off your purchase and start developing apps for iOS and Android using C-Sharp and .NET. And let's talk about the technology. So you guys used a, a sockets-based uh, approach to talk to a service on the desktop side. Isn't that right? Yeah. So um, to back up the, the Connect, you know, the Microsoft Connect, uh, one way to use it and the preferred way for us being a Microsoft shop is uh, there's a Microsoft SDK for the Connect. And so that's a set of managed libraries that in a Win7 app, for example, you can you know, talk through those APIs and connect to the connect and, and it starts pumping out frames of imagery and skeleton data positions and things to your, your application. No big deal. But, uh, as we were talking about the green side and the blue side, you can't load existing .NET assemblies over in the Metro side in WinRT. Um, you can use some, what feels like .NET code over in the Metro side, but only by copy and pasting the code and, and, you know, compiling it over there. So, so the brick wall here that we were banging our head against is that you can't connect to the connect through the SDK on the Metro side. Right. So you're not doing this just because you're difficult. You're doing this because there's no other way to use the connect. That's right. I mean, in the Metro side, there is no, you know, it, you can argue that uh, perhaps in a future, you know, year that uh, the Connect SDK would be compatible with Windows 8 or something, but you know, we don't want to wait around, so right. we wanted to we wanted to do it now, right? So, so yeah, we had to figure out a way to connect over to the device, but and you can only do that over on the desktop side. But yet, I want my hand to be waving at my Metro app on a big screen or something, and and moving the hand cursor around. So. As you mentioned, yeah, we, we um, came up with the idea that just, well, let's just open a WebSocket across across the fence, right? So um, WebSockets are a way for websites or, you know, browsers these days can hook up to servers through a, a low-level socket. And okay. there's a WebSocket implementation in the WinRT APIs. Right. So um, really our two choices were there's also a regular HTTP client over in the WinRT side. Hmm. So you can make calls out to like websites and make REST calls and get XML back and do that kind of stuff. But um, Now here's a, if, here's, here's a question for you. Yeah. Um, uh, so it is okay to make a WebSocket call. Is, is it okay to make a WebSocket call to your own IP address or to an IP address that's on your machine? Because what, yeah. what happens is when you submit an app for the app store, they essentially look at your IL and say, ah, you can't do that, you can't do this, even though it might be allowed on your developer machine. Um, so I'm not sure, I'm not sure if that's gonna, if that's gonna work, but here's the second question is, is it necessary to run that service on your machine or can that service run in the cloud? Yeah, good questions. Um, so the first one is actually some hurdles that we had to get past. So uh, even after we got the sockets going and we opened the socket on the server side, you know, the, it's the same machine, but I'll call it the server side, the yeah. left side and the right side, you know, the client. Um, that I was banging my head against the wall saying, gosh, I'm connecting to local host. It's my own machine. My firewall is off. You know, what's yeah. the deal? And all I get back is a nice H result, you know, from reminds me of my calm days. So yeah. <laughs> 
did some digging around, and it turns out there's this uh, protection in the Metro side against, as you say, Carl, the uh, the ability to call your own your own machine, you know, because you don't want to kind of do what we're doing and expose some services on the other side. So, yeah. so there's some security issues, but it turns out there's this uh, there's this tool called CheckNet Isolation, and I found some guy on the forums talking about it. Uh, you know, he's doing a similar thing about calling himself on a website. So. You have to use this command line tool, check net isolation, and pass your package name of, you know, this cryptic uh, ID, so to speak, a GUID-type looking thing. And that opens up the ability for that Metro package to talk to the local machine um, for the purposes of this this thing, socket communications or whatever. So Interesting, because that almost sounds like an infrastructure put in specifically to make this legal. Yeah, it's interesting. There's uh, there was some further discussion on the forum saying, "Hey, what's the provision for me doing this checknet isolation thing as part of my install?" So, kind of to Carl's point on the second question, when when there's an app store and when we you know somebody could put an app like this up in the app store, what will be the steps? You know, number one, it's going to install the app, but number two, I'll have to do this post-install step that says checknet isolation. Currently, the answer was from a Microsoft guy that said, well, there's no, there isn't a plan for that. So it remains to be seen whether this will be quote unquote legal or not to do. Yeah. Um, you know, this is definitely a, a little bit of a hack job just to get around a, a hurdle for now. And then, you know, down the road, we hoped not to do this and just talk natively to the connect. I mentioned the cloud here. Is it just not feasible to have your connect service, uh, going through some sort of cloud-based or web-based proxy that's outside of your machine? Is it is it just a matter of speed and performance? Yeah, it's more about the speed and performance. The um, It's just not practical to, when you want, when you're moving your hand around and you want the response to be, you know, that, that hand cursor is, is very closely following your hand. Yeah. You know, you don't want to, it's basically a latency problem. So um, even on the same machine, what we're doing is the connect serves up the data to the service side at 30 frames a second. Jeez. And, and then the client side pulls on that socket at currently it's a setting that we just tweak, but currently we're doing it at 15 frames a second to try to get it as fast as possible, but not, uh, overwhelm the machine, um, we're doing this on these little build tablets, and they're they're not the most performant things around. So right. we found that anything more than 15 frames a second on those and so- doing all that work, socket connections, and the other side is doing the 30 frames a second. Right. So um, you can imagine if you tried to do that across machines, even on an intranet, you know, on mm-hmm. a on a on a LAN, just the latency on the on the network would be orders of magnitude slower than going on your same machine. Now, um, are you using UDP or TCP? We're doing TCP currently. Yeah. Is it possible to use UDP? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I only play a, a network socket guy on TV, so I don't know that much about... I mean, I know UDP is a kind of a broadcast thing, and you, we wanted this to be more of a point-to-point, like we know we're calling this IP address localhost. Well, you, you know, can still and, do that. It's just connectionless and much, yeah. much faster because there's no overhead. I, f- I tried to do... Cool. Well, I did a MIDI over TC... over Well, a MIDI over sockets thing. And MIDI is a high-speed serial interface for uh, sort of like a digital player piano. You press a key on your keyboard, it sends a MIDI command to another keyboard, and that plays. So it's got to be responsive. And I found that with TCP, uh, I had just a significant delay, even on the LAN. But with UDP, it was practically instantaneous. Ah, even, very good. Even tip. on the same oh, yeah, we'll machine. Have to check that out. 
Even on the same machine, I had a delay with TCP. So yeah, UDP wow. is, and you don't have to make a connection. You just basically in the packet you say, "I want to send this to this IP address in this port." Boom, and it's done. Done. Yeah. But it's very cool. That's that's because TCP enforces order, does yep. CRC checking. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff that TCP does as a plumbing, which you have to decide if you value it or not. Right. Right. Exactly. There's some performance costs there, obviously, and there's recovery. Right. Like if a if a packet gets lost, it'll recover it for you, so you, you feel like you're getting it all in the right order on the on the receiving side. Right. You just don't get it fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess you know. I guess if you can handle an occasional, well, you're on the same machine, so why would you not get it? I yeah, mean, right. I mean, I think it would only be due to like if the machine is overwhelmed or maybe you know it's yeah. a conflict of cycles. You know, the the service side is trying to answer these um, events from the Connect SDK at 30 frames a second. If it's so mm -hmm. busy doing that that it's overwhelmed on the socket side, it might. I mean, it potentially could miss a miss a message here or there, I guess. I don't know. Now, are you sending to the service, or are you receiving from the service? Uh, currently, we are uh, requesting from the client to the service, and the service is responding with the the last known position data of the of the skeleton data. Can't, and I I don't know the answer to this because I don't remember, but. In in the sockets implementation on the client side, on the metro side, can you uh, act as a listener in a server, or is it client only? It looked like it was client only to me from yeah. what I was digging around. Of course, there's not a ton of documentation. There's only really what the a list of the APIs and some for you know people talking on forums and stuff. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, I did uh, put a link in, maybe hopefully in the show notes it'll show up. The um, there's a sample. Um, it's called the Dot Hunter sample um, in the WinRT SDK samples package that you can download for you know 200 meg or something worth of samples, and it it does pretty much the same thing. That's where we kind of got the idea of the feasibility of this thing that the client um, connect the Metro client connects over to a service, which just spits out random dot positions and then you try to use your finger and like it's almost like you're bubble bursting or something on a on a client but yeah it's doing the same thing where it's talking to itself and doing the same socket implementation interesting let me turn this on its head so why did you involve metro in this because you knew um, it, it had to be connect had to be on that side because of the sdk what'd you get from metro that made it worth the hoop so yeah, it's interesting. We um, so we've doing we've been doing this uh, this same key. We call it the kiosk framework here at Internology. We have this uh, this framework that allows you to browse arbitrary content that's stored up in say a SharePoint site or a SQL Server backend. And and we've got a, f a bunch of clients that are using this. Like in there, we started way back. Um, the first version we did this was on the Surface table. And so they have it in their lobby as you're like waiting for an interview or something. You're browsing their their corporate media and stuff. And then we did it in uh, Win Seven Touch. You know, you walk up to a screen, wall mounted, and you're touching and browsing and flicking and things like that. Um, the UI that we built for it was was interestingly enough, it was Metro. I mean, it's Chromeless. These are pre-Metro Win Eight. This is in Win Seven and Surface. They're it's black. It's got no Chrome. You flick to move things around. I mean, it, it feels you know, two or three years ago we were saying some of our guys were talking Metro, and we had some designers helping us and stuff. So, so although from a look and feel standpoint, the Win Seven implementation of this kiosk 
app is very metro. It just felt natural to want want this on Windows 8 with a bunch of the gestures, flick, and those controls that give you the flip view and things like that, quote unquote, for free. So it just seemed like a, a natural next step for the next version of our software to port it to Windows 8. All right. So there there is a datagram socket, which supports network communication using a UDP datagram socket. Um, I'm not sure if that will accept as well. I'm sort of, oh yeah, message received, an event that indicates a message was received. So you can receive UDP messages on a datagram socket class. So that, that might be a way to, to seriously boost your performance there. Yeah, just, I'll definitely have to take thinking. a look at that. It's um, The terminology is a little interesting where we, that's how I'm doing it now is that the uh, the messages are being received on the client side, but only after a request has been made. It's, a, it's basically kind of a two-way freeway. You know, it's like the message goes over to the service, the service receives it, the service turns around and pumps one back to the client, and the client receives that. And so in the yeah. receive, I'm literally in the received handler where I'm getting, oh, okay, I have a new, I have a new buffer. Let is me, there, you know, read some bytes off of that and, and interpolate, you know. Is there more than one type of message or is the type of message encapsulated in the message? In other words, if you just had a receiver, would you still be able to process the data or do you have to do the ask and receive? Uh, I think you have to do the ask and receive, but I'm not positive about that. The um, If there's only one kind of message in the future, I plan to add other messages where you want to kind of configure what, tell the server what do you want, what are you interested in? A little bit about the connect. I mean, there's there's really three kinds of data that you yeah. that you get from the connect. There's the depth image data, there's the RGB image data, and then there's the connect skeleton data that d- gives you points and where yeah. the joints are and stuff. So currently, we only care about the joint positions. And and for this little prototype hacky thing, there specifically we care about the right hand position. Yeah. And we ask the service to do some translation for us in terms of the resolution that we want and you know where where in the viewport, so to speak, as your hand compared to the resolution that we're running the client and things like that. So, so, is, so we plan to kind of augment the service and send, send a little bit more messaging across to say, hey, give, it, give me this, give me that, and the response would be appropriate for what you asked for. I guess what I'm saying is, can you just um, put the message type in a header in the message so that you wouldn't have to ask for a particular type of message? You would just process the stream and say, oh, this is a message that's this type, and process it this way. Oh, this yeah, one is, could, yeah. Yeah, I think you could do that. That sounds good. The um, one other thing I ran into that's interesting to discuss is the um, just the the raw bytes across these this, the the virtual wire here, and uh, ran into a bunch of problems with um, the like the byte ordering and the Unicode versus non-Unicode oh, yeah. and the byte mark and all that. And again, I'm not a network guru, so. With the lack of documentation on the WinRT side, it yeah. was fun to try to have to figure out, let's see, uh, on the service side, I've got three doubles that I want to send across, you know, an X, a Y, and a Z, say, of the hand, the current hand position. And uh, so I, I, I very easily just pump three doubles into a, a memory stream yeah. uh, that represents the buffer, and I send them out. And then I wake up on the client side, oh, new message received, uh, here's your three doubles, I read them out. And maybe I sent one, two, and three across as the values. When I receive them on the client side, it's negative 267, yeah. 47, and 8.64. You know, just crazy, crazy data. Yeah. So yeah. what ends up happening is that what I what I figured out after just pure trial and error is that the data reader and the memory stream and the 
basically on the reader side, the defaults for these two classes, remember one is in WinRT on the receiving side and the other one's in .NET 4.5 on the sending side. And the defaults for some of these settings, say the Unicode or should I send a byte mark or are you little Indian or big Indian and things like that, were different. So if you just knew up a writer and a reader and you hope they communicate correctly, that's not the case. So through trial and error, I figured out that, you know, it's Unicode, it's Little Indian, and it's uh, no byte order, byte mark, or whatever. Good Lord. Good good times. Good times. Yeah. Honey, are you coming to bed? <laughs> as soon as I get Little Indian and Big Indian figured out. <laughs> this portion of the tablet show is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting the tablet show. It does sound like the amount of data coming out of Connect can be a bit overwhelming. Yeah, the um, luckily for most apps, what we're finding is really all you care about is certain positions. You know, certain joint positions. You care about the right hand, the left hand, maybe the head position, and, and their relative you know positions to each other. Um, most demos that we do and stuff have the imagery and the depth data on there. They just show them, you know, it's, it's super easy on a WPF app in, in just .NET world to just splat that image onto an image element in WPF and just it looks like a 30 frames a second movie, you know, of, of whatever the camera's showing you. But in this particular app, we chose to, you know, not pump the imagery across the wire, so to speak, just because we don't need it for the purposes of the app, you know. So are you telling the Connect not to send you that data, or is it the service on the blue side that's filtering that out? Yeah, we do either one. We we have uh, the service side is just this poor man's lame-looking UI that has checkboxes that says, um, you know, you fire this up first before you start the Metro app, and you there's checkboxes that say, before I connect to the device, what do I want to see? Do I want to see mostly for demo purposes? We leave the uh, RGB imagery on just right. to kind of prove to somebody that look there you are, and then it superimposes the skeleton data. You know the little um, stick figure man on top of the RGB image. So it's just proof that hey, this is me, and it's, I'm waving my hand, and this is all cool. But then um, we generally can turn those off before we start. You know, pumping the sockets, so the data across the socket. So, so Dan, you've been talking uh, uh, for most of the show. Let's hear from Danny. Danny, what was your role in this um, project? Uh, I'm mostly on the development side of the of the green side of the world in uh, in Metro. So while Dan was off partying in the Connect world and <laughs> in the uh, in the blue side of the world, I was I was in my little encapsulated corner. 
well, of Metro. Your, your job is easy. No Chrome, just a few, you know, widely spaced text. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's sort of remedial yeah. software, isn't it? It's reduced instruction set. Oh, oh man. <laughs> you know, and it's, we're only it's that pretty easy. amazing. We, we jump in here and, you know, I have experience in Silverlight and WPS, so I figure, okay, we'll just jump in and start moving forward. And uh, what we came to find out is that the preview of of WinRT XAML is quite uh, uh, behind as far as the the world of XAML is concerned. Yeah. Oh, really? So I, I figured looking at and this is actually Carl's work, so I may be stealing some thunder here. That it seems like the guys with the Silverlight skill set are the closest to what the WinRT skill set should look like. It's still only fifty two percent compatible, right? Yeah, you as as a Silverlight developer jumping in, you definitely can understand what's going on, and it, it all looks very similar. And while the namespaces may not match up exactly how you would expect them to, there's still controls, there's still binding, but a lot of the binding support is uh, is lacking right now, and a lot of uh, dependency property support is lacking as well, as well as yeah. uh, the routed anything support is lacking. Um, you know, we had uh, some blog posts that will be included as links that we sent you all. And those, uh, we, we ran through some of these gotchas that we found. And uh, a lot of them are, are mostly just because the it's preview bits. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're fighting, you know, we're kind of kicking against the pricks here and trying to find our way through and, and uh, make, make it work as you would as you would expect, yeah. but, uh, you know, working around all the, all the workarounds. <laughs> Danny, you want to talk about the, uh, the trickery we did with the controls to show or hide, um, the navigation buttons when the connect is either on or off our app, you know, responds accordingly. Yeah. So we, uh, we listened for this, uh, this event telling us that the connect is attached through what we call a connect proxy. Right. And this connect proxy just, you know, it just says right when the application starts up, is the connect available, yes or no? And uh, then we have um, some application state, this this class that lives statically up in our application world, and we we have to bind into that in order to know, you know, if, if uh, the connect is connected or not. <laughs> so what's interesting, though, is that if we have this application state class as part of our view model and we're inside of a uh, data template buried deep inside of everything we need to get to this view model that we're not in context of, uh-huh. we would normally be able to relative source out of our world or be able to use an element name binding to bind to something. But a lot of times that that doesn't work for us. So we have to move a lot of stuff around. Our view models are not as clean as one would hope. And a lot of our, a lot of our bindings, a lot of our XAML, especially our XAML is uh, definitely moved in, into places and we have bindings and uh, more explicitly, uh, explicitly designed controls rather than data templated or custom controls for doing all of our work. But is this just an issue of, you know, WinRT being pre-release? It's just, you know, not clean yet? Or is this because of the hoops you're jumping through to make Connect work? 
definitely just the the preview bits from you know it, it's the Windows 8 preview is is not quite there. The WinRT framework, we get a lot of notes or we've seen a lot of notes from Microsoft on the their forums about the Windows 8 stuff, right. saying oh that that's a known issue, we'll fix it. That's a known issue, we'll fix it. That's it's a very common theme for us right now is to get this, oh, that's a known issue, we'll fix it. Well, and, and I'm cognizant of the fact that the bits we got at Build are older than the bits they were even demoing at Build. And mm. so, you know, I'm wondering how many times the answer is actually, yeah, we, that's a known issue that we've already fixed, you just can't have it yet. Yeah. <laughs> One of the big, uh, the other answer that we would maybe get sometimes is that it's either not implemented yet or it might not be implemented and you just never know. Like if, if something's missing, that's the, the hardest part about pre-release software. And we've done this in analogy, we do a ton of pre-release and we're used to this and stuff, but it just it gets us every time that, you know, say a certain feature, a certain API is not there. You just don't know if it's just a bug that's not implemented. They just didn't have time yet. Or, you know, they're implementing this XAML stack from scratch in native code right. for Win, WinRT. So maybe they have plans not to support that for some reason. You know, our trigger is going to be there. We don't know. You Stuff know, like that. You know, mm-hmm. we really didn't dive into, and that is why you had to stretch across to the blue side to begin with. Um, yeah, we, we touched yeah. on that saying that we, you can't load the connect SDK natively in the green side in the WinRT because they are implemented as .NET assemblies. And so you can't just reference existing .NET assemblies. They just don't load correctly. They, you can't load a, an assembly that's just natively in .NET. It has to be recompiled against the WinRT APIs and stuff like you were talking about and jitted the right way and all that kind of stuff. To kind of add on to that, in in the .NET world, we have this awesome capability to be able to reuse assemblies. And in the WinRT world, you know, we, we can copy that code over into the WinRT world. So it, a lot of it is compatible, but when we get into the Connect world, there's, there's certain uh, DLLs that we don't have access to that we can't go over and copy into our WinRT world. If we could, then uh, that that would open up, uh, you know, a different discussion to see if we can support everything that, you know, if we have access to the connect itself through USB and if we can uh, port all of that code over. But right now, a lot of those DLLs are, are closed to us. Yeah, so what really has to happen here in order for this to work, I'm thinking, is that the C++ source code to those DLLs really has to get recompiled in C++ for WinRT. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So that's what we're uh, that's what we're hoping. I mean, down the road, we won't have to do this this hackery. This was really just to you know us eager beavers just trying to get get it get it working early. But well, and don't don't let me uh, make you think that it's not cool. This is the coolest thing I've <laughs> it's the coolest <laughs> thing I've heard anybody doing with WinRT ever. Yeah. Well, since since build, it's absolutely ridiculously cool. And maybe we got to jump back a little bit on here. Just this whole thinking around gesture-based interface. You know, what are the right app? Getting past it that it's cool because let's face it, it is. What apps are better served this way? Yeah, we we've been sort of toying with that and struggling with that all at the same time uh, for the past little you know few months, if not at least a year or something. Because, um, like I said, we've been doing Connect-based apps on uh, you know Win Seven for a while, but. 
It's honestly, I mean, even though it's cool to do and you can wave your hand and you can kind of bring it, your hand over to a, we call it a hover button when you hold your hand over it for about a second, you know, it, it fills a, fills a button up and then it triggers the, the command for the button. Honestly, though, it, it's still sort of hard to use that, you know, like to stand back 10 feet, move your hand around. It's a little bit, you know, inaccurate and things. So my wife hates it. <laughs> we're kind of still coming up with the same same issues or same questions. One idea is like, you know, instead of using buttons, right now we have a next button and a previous button. They're, they're big, you know, 100 by 100 pixels. You want to put your hand over it. But maybe a different way to do scrolling or paging is is move your hand away from your the mm. midpoint of your body, right? Yeah. And you can, you know, we know that because we know the relative positions. And, and the further away you go, maybe that just means scroll me faster. Or you know, like, flip it. I don't like want do to hassle with a button over there. Just just watch what my hand is doing, you know, things like that. So Or flick it like you do with the, your finger. To yeah. Move. yeah. The, it turns out the flicking stuff, I'm, I'm not a Kinect expert, and I, I owe it to a cool cu- couple cool guys. I should give them a shout-out. Brian Kuhn and Travis Schilling here at IK, they... They've been doing a lot more Connect than we have, so they helped us a ton on this project, and they they do some blogging and stuff. So check out their blogs on the IK site. But those guys have experimented with other gestures and writing. Um, from my understanding, writing the the code involved to recognize a gesture like a flick or even a, a right hand, like you know, going from your body up to your head or something like that, is is very involved, quite involved with tons of math and things like that. So. Not that it can't be done, but it's uh, a lot more than you would maybe want to do for a standard line of business app where you're just trying to maybe scroll or touch a touch a button somewhere. You know, it's hard to imagine, but Connect has only existed for a year. Yeah, right. and and it, it's you talk about profound, right? Like the impact of this USB device is incredible. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, that's what I keep reminding myself that it's just this little, I think it's what, $135 device yeah. that's like so amazingly powerful in terms of what it can do. We haven't even talked about, you know, we're trying to work on audio. You, there's four microphones in the thing. It'll, it'll, it'll tell you who of the four or five people in the room are, are talking and from what angle and all kinds of stuff. We're getting into here at Internology, we're doing some medical stuff where, you know, maybe you're a doctor and you're, in surgery or something and you're not you know it's a sterile environment you don't you don't want to be touching your monitor to right. go look at something so you just kind of motion over to the to the monitor over there to the connect and you know you're on to the next screen you're looking at a, some data or whatever so there's it's it's an untapped market we feel like you know there's so many possibilities yeah its ability to sort people out of a crowd is kind of shockingly good like it, <laughs> and, and well plus mainly this thing's only been built for the Xbox and the Xbox hasn't got that much horsepower Exactly. There's a there's a lot of processing. I mean, the the device is pumping out pretty much raw data, and the um, you like in the SDK on the PC side, it's the SDK that's doing a bunch of the heavy lifting. Right. It's just taking that depth image and doing crazy math against it to figure out, you know, oh, there's two skeletons, and by the way, I'm tracking those two people on the back in the couch too, but just in case they move, and I'll swap them in for a skeleton if 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 it matters pretty amazing well guys this has been absolutely amazing um i I just want to point out that if you go to the website the don and rocks website you can see links to the internology blogs where you guys uh, demonstrate this with a video and everything uh dan and danny thank you very much it's great stuff and keep us posted awesome thanks guys good talking thank you you. and we'll see you next time on the tablet show